Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Rock and Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck. Today I'm joined by a very special guest, an educator and blogger, Stephanie Cara. How's it going today, Stephanie? Hi, Nick. Thank you uh, so much for having me. I am very excited to, to talk about Tears for Fears today. Um, you know, when, when we plan this podcast, we plan to talk about, you know, what we call a legacy act. We will talk about their old music, but out of nowhere, they announce a new album and release a new single. So we're, we'll, we'll talk about Tears for Fears as a legacy band and, and also get excited for their new album called The Tipping Point, which releases on February 25th uh, of 2022. Yes, yeah, this episode, when we planned it about a month or two before we actually recorded, what was really interesting is I didn't realize that they had a new single coming out. I didn't realize that they were going to have a new album out next year. So it's kind of very topical and relevant to do an episode on them because Tears for Fears, like we're going to talk about later, they don't just make albums every year. They take their time to make works. And sometimes it could be three years, five years, or 20 years, it seems. So it's just really a very special event when they do make new music. Exactly, yes. And longtime fans know that they are kind of an on-again, off-again band. And um, you know, for uh, when they were most popular in the 1980s or most commercially successful, I guess we can say. I think they're, they might be more popular now than ever. But, um, you know, their classic era, you had several years between songs from The Big Chair and, and The Seeds of Love. So, you know, from the outset as a fan, you, you got used to that. Don't hold your breath waiting for a new album. And they've been talking about a, a potential new album for a long time. And yeah, and they're still relatively young. Like they're they're one of those artists that we think that they're older because their heyday was like thirty plus years ago. But they're still. I mean, they're in their fifties and maybe early sixties, but they're not like terribly old where they could still make new music. Now, uh, you were telling me about your background uh, before. Um, can you elaborate a little bit on that for listeners? I'm mostly known for somebody who, who takes an interest in, in 60s and 70s music. And I, I went viral writing about Chicago the band uh, a, f a few years ago. And that was during a whole controversy around whether or not they deserve to be in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And of course, they, they were inducted and many rock critics simply refused to take them seriously. Um, I'm trained in political science. I went to school for political science. I've had jobs in politics. The bringing music and politics together as Tears for Fears is, is known for is something that has always resonated with me personally. And I, I, I go as far to say that their music really influenced who I am and how I see the world today. Yeah, and Tears for Fears, something that we'll talk about more in depth later is that they're a very politically, socially conscious band. And you don't think about their hits as being political songs by any means, but they kind of are. And I mean, it's it's super fascinating because even something like Everybody Wants to Rule the World, there's definitely a political and social message that they're trying to convey to listeners, even mm -hmm. if it's in a mainstream pop format. And that's one of the, the great things about pop music, in my opinion, is that it has that ability to be somewhat subdued, but also rise above that and make it a really huge effect. Now, when did you first hear Tears for Fears? 
1984. Their first album, I have no memories of when it was new, but 1984, they started releasing the singles from Songs from the Big Chair. I, I had to look this up, but actually Mother's Talk came first. But I remember Shout more more than anything else as, uh, you know, the first song that really kicked me in the butt. I was in fourth grade, very, you know, nine years old, and... I guess I, at that time, I was already developing a, a rudimentary political understanding of things, you know, and, and Shout comes on the radio and there's roll and screaming in violent times. You shouldn't have to sell your soul. Um, it, it's just the whole idea of a creative person telling the truth when the, when the establishment will not. I think, you know, what, what I saw in, in Roland's songwriting and, you know, for the record here, for anybody that doesn't know, Tears for Fears is a duo. There are other collaborators and songwriters and record producers that are very, very important to, to their sound and who they are. But for the most part, Tears for Fears is a duo. Two 60, just turned 60 year olds, uh, Roland Orzabal and Kurt Smith. Um, they have a small catalog for the amount of time that, that they have uh, around. Um, and the fact that they made a concept album in 1985, that blew my mind completely. And, um, you know, a lot of contemporary bands at that time, um, they let you down. They would put great songs on the radio. You'd, you'd buy the cassette. Um, you, you'd spend your entire allowance on it, and the album tracks are terrible. And, and that was a very a common pattern for 80s bands. Um, but, you know, songs from the big chair start to finish that album as a creative statement. I think, I think it really does still, you know, stand the test of time. Um, not just the singles, but the, the album tracks as well. Yeah, and that album kind of has grew over time. And it's now considered, I would say, at least in a 2021 perspective, it's considered a definitive new wave or 80s pop masterpiece that sure. is alongside more famous bands like The Cure, Depeche Mode, The Smiths, Kate Bush. There's a lot of artists of that era were always kind of shadowing over Tears for Fears. And that's what I think is so interesting about Tears for Fears is that they always seem like they're kind of like an afterthought for some reason. And I don't know if it's because they have that perception that they're only a singles band. Because I, I think that's a problem with a lot of new wave acts is that a lot of people forget that, you know, some of these new wave artists made hugely successful Albums like Duran Duran is a perfect example. We did an episode on Duran Duran. Of course, we know their their hit singles because they're everywhere, but their album cuts are sometimes just as good, if not better, than the singles. And I think that that speaks a testament to how great a band is. Exactly. And um, th things get lost in translation, go going from the United Kingdom to America. And, you know, that takes us into the, you know, the question of, um, you know, what's going on? in England and the wider United Kingdom in the 1980s that all of these bands make up what we now call the second British invasion. A part of that, well, most of it uh, came from London 
and Tears for Fears are coming from Bath, which is, you know, the south of England, um, but still remote enough from London where they were they really weren't part of what was going on there. Um, and this is a this is a reaction against punk music, and punk music is dirty. And the Blitz Kids were also rebellious, but in a completely different way. They were dressing up, they were playing around with you know wearing feminine clothes, wearing high fashion clothes, and basically expressing themselves. Uh, in a way that broke gender barriers. So you have this fashion scene going on during that time. And you have the whole new wave sound all coming together. And Tears for Fears, of course, are, are a little different. You know, you, want, you, you would watch their videos on MTV and they're in their street clothes. Roland and Kurt look like the boys next door. They don't look like they're from London. You can tell they're different from Human League. There, you know, maybe some cultural affinity, but a completely different way of expressing yourself. And another thing that's going on here with regards to the MTV culture, and this includes Tears for Fears, Human League, the Culture Club, Duran Duran, but um, the, the bands that really knew what to do with music television, they have directors of these videos who understand new wave film. And that goes back to the 1950s and, and 1960s. They really knew how to do something with the visual culture that enhanced the music. And a neat experiment for everybody is to, you know, to go back and you can watch the first two hours of, of MTV and see who, under, who understood film culture and who didn't. And it's, it's mostly the British bands that understood it. And, and some of the American bands, they're just recording their concerts and putting that on television. You know, it's really, what's the difference between a concert on TV and what's the difference between music TV? But, uh, and, and the British bands understood music TV. Oh, definitely. And that's one of the legacies of the second British invasion of the early to mid 80s is that they kind of made something that was supposed to be disposable, right? Like a con like a music video that was essentially a concert. And that was like so many of them on MTV, right? But what's really interesting is that they kind of made it into like an art form in a weird way, like those Duran Duran music videos, like we talked about with um john was that they're very like, cinematic and they're over the top and they're telling these like hugely convoluted stories in like three minutes and it's pretty amazing and then when you go and look at like a rod stewart concert for example you're just like of course i'm going to go to duran duran at least they're putting effort <laughs> into their music videos yeah i think that that's so interesting about how we're historicizing them in the 1980s i think that that's really something that i don't think they get enough credit for now i do have a question would you consider tears for fears one of your favorite bands um, they're my favorite band in terms of uh, uh, any group that's contemporary with my own lifetime. Most of my other favorite bands would have gotten their start before I was born. So yes, absolutely. And um, I, I can say I'm, I'm really not a big fan of new wave as a genre. You know, most of the music that is what has been released during my lifetime, it's not my favorite for the most part. But yeah, that, and that's why I think Tears for Fears is significant to me. Yeah, that's fair. Because I think a lot of times, a, a lot of people, they tend to pick their favorite artists when they're in their teenage years or young adulthood. And that kind of sort of stays with you the rest of your life in a way, right? And it's one of those things where even newer artists that you would discover later on or retrospectively look at artists that influenced, say, Tears for Fears, that's kind of where your barometer usually stays. I mean, very few people are adventurous and, you know, just listen to whatever. 
I did want to talk a little bit about how they formed because I think that it's really interesting because I didn't know a whole lot about their backgrounds, but I know that they came from very difficult childhoods. So I I was hoping we could maybe talk a little bit about that because I think that this kind of explains a lot of the music that would come later. Sure, and and it most it mostly explains their earliest work uh, on the herding, but yes, they are from uh, Bath, England, which is in the, the southwest. It's a, it's a different experience than 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 the north of England, where most jobs are industrial. It's slightly more privileged, but both of them grow up in in council estates, and in America, that's what we call public housing. So they are coming from working class backgrounds. They both experience trauma and childhood. They are both the middle sons. They both have an older brother and a younger brother. Roland in particular over the years has been very transparent about the trauma that he faced in childhood with with an abusive father and they the family, his parents break up and that theme comes into uh, comes into their work. But yeah, they, they bond over shared trauma. Another thing about them, they both have incredibly diverse uh, influences and you can't really sum up their influences. They, they listen to all different types of music and they're exposed to it. They bond over Blue Oyster Cult. Roland hears a lot of country and Western growing up. He, he, he was a fan of Johnny Cash and this might surprise some Americans, but yeah, American country and Western music does have an incredible hold in the British Isles, both Great Britain and Ireland. It, it, it was and is very popular. Maybe not so much now, but in, in the 20th century, they many British artists would have been listening to American country music. But they uh, they get together as teenagers. They're in a band called Graduate. Roland and John Baker form Graduate, and then they bring uh, Kurt in. And Graduate, they you can you can find some clips on on YouTube, you know. But they look like the winners of the eighth grade talent contest. It's it's very cute. They're kind of mid sixties mod, but they're playing ska and uh, you know they're dancing. It's very energetic, and Kurt's on bass. At that time, uh, Roland teaches him how to play bass. And the, the the short story about Graduate is that the other band members wanted to tour a lot. And Roland and Kurt are more interested in going into the studio and being an album band, which is when they get, how we get to Tears for Fears, that, you know, focus on making albums rather than being road warriors. And the, the band name comes from, you know, the idea that, we're going to uh, reveal our emotions. You see, you hear the word cry, references to crying in many of their works. We're going to reveal our emotions and maybe that, maybe doing that will put our fears to rest. That's where they get their name. The the availability of the of the synthesizers, that comes from Ian Stanley, who in the old videos, you see him on keyboards with the blonde hair. Uh, he looks kind of tousled, but yeah, uh, Ian had the equipment that made it possible for them to start working with synthesizers, but both Roland and Kurt are guitar players, so it was kind of awkward that, okay, they're a new wave band, but they're guitar players, and by the end of the 80s, that will be resolved when they start playing without the synths, uh, w- starting with the Seeds of Love. Definitely, and I think that's something to think about, too, with their musical influences, that they're taking a lot of influences from 
especially their native England. And it's kind of when they were starting to work with the synthesizer, that's kind of like when bands such as Depeche Mode, orchestral maneuvers in the dark, and even like American bands like the Talking Heads, they were kind of drawn from the Mezzas inspirations and kind of pointed to them saying, okay, like this is kind of working right now. And this is something I'm interested in. And then, of course, you have all these other figures like Gary Newman and, of course, Brian Eno that are kind of looming over Tears for Fears as influences. And it's really interesting how they kind of got into it, not by accident, but really because they were like, okay, this is what is working. Let's build off of that. And something else I think that's really interesting about their band name is that they kind of got it from those primal therapy sessions, I think, that you just said by Arthur Yanoff. And I think what's really interesting is that, did you mention uh, John Lennon? He, he is the most famous patient of primal scream therapy, yes. Yeah, because that, I always think of, with primal scream, I always think of John Lennon when he was in the early 1970s, and that inspired some of his most famous albums of that era. So it's kind of like interesting how art sometimes comes from suffering. Mm-hmm. There, there's another theme here, a very serious one that comes into their work. You know, but you have the, the parents of kids in the 1960s that have lived through World War II, and this includes Roland's father. And, and how, do, how do we deal with, you know, that is where we are, civilians as legitimate targets. This comes into the Mother's Talk video, and you have gr- great acting in that video, a wonderful skit about, you know, a typical middle-class family having a child and trying to shield that child from the fact that an atomic bomb can go off at any minute. So, you know, another serious topic that they bring into their music and these personal traumas are all wrapped up with societal trauma oh definitely and i think that that's their one of their takeaways especially now that we look at them in a more critical lens we're like okay it's not this disposable pop music of like shout and everybody wants to rule the world like there is depth to their work and i think something that's really interesting about their life too before they formed the band is that they grew up in poverty essentially they really had to work their way to become successful musicians there's a reason why the themes come up from people who grew up working class Mm -hmm. yeah definitely um so speaking of uh their first album because we talked a little bit about it the herd in now, it became a really big hit in England. I think it went to number one, even, on their charts. It kind of stalled in the U.S. Now, why do you think that that first album didn't reach a global audience that later on Songs from the Big Chair would? The Hurting released 1993. It, it gets to, on the U.S. charts, number 73. So, yeah, modest. You know, a good, a good breakthrough, a little bit. But, yeah, they, they absolutely had to do better you know, than that if they were going to be a success in the United States, which later on leads to, uh, you know, the record company and uh, putting some pressure on them to be more commercial later on. But Mm -hmm. I think going back to 1983, you know, and for me, this is very much in retrospect. I was, you know, seven years old when when the hurting came out. But uh, yeah, it gets to number one in the United Kingdom in its second week of release. So we have a, a big discrepancy here. Uh, Canada's closer to the United Kingdom. It peaks at number seven. I think to sum up why this album did not 
be a big hit in the United States from a, you know, a, again, a political point of view, the hurting it's, you know, it's a catalog really of how, of their childhood trauma and what they wanted to heal, you know, inside themselves. H how does an American react to that? A typical American at that time. And what, what does mainstream culture tell us when you have trauma like that? What do, you, what do you do with it? Well, the thing you're supposed to do with it as a patriotic American is to cover it up with, you know, with materialism. Do we even need to talk about where materialism is in the 1980s? Greed is good. You, you cover up your trauma with just purchasing things. And of course, street drugs, you know, that type of escapism. For, for an American hearing the hurting, you're not going to identify with that. I think it's very bleak. I think that's part of it, too, because even like the lead singles from that album, like Mad World and Suffer the Children, Pale Shelter, Change, like they're very dark and they're almost a little too bleak for a mainstream audience at that moment in time, because it's like the music itself is fine, I think, like like the the sounds of it is is really interesting what they're doing and what they're experimenting with but i think it's just there's a disconnect because i think something that i hate to say this about british bands of that time in like the 60s or 70s or especially the 80s is that it sounded very british it didn't have that universality that the other albums would in the, that decade like mm -hmm. even the way that they pronounce the words like um in mad world or uh, change it just sounds very british almost too hard and that's why someone like the jam that they didn't really convey to an american audience exactly and the ideas are harsh you know one of the things that i think makes tears for fears timeless and you know maybe they we could have americans collectively could have picked up on this i don't know maybe it's not so much apparent with the hurting but with with Kurt and Roland, you have two really distinctive vocalists. Yes. Um, and, you know, what they wanted on American radio during this time was tenors. And you, you have Kurt singing Change. Maybe that was the hit or could have been the hit. Kurt's trademark as a tenor vocalist is to kind of reach down for those low notes. And he does that and everybody wants to, to rule the world. And, you know, mm -hmm. it's kind of kind of a trademark, a tenor going for the low notes. And then you have Roland as a baritone uh, who can sing up into the stratosphere. Maybe that was not so much apparent on the hurting, but it could have been. Two gifted singers kind of foils for each other in terms of their vocal styles, personalities. Uh, ideas as opiates, you know, that would have never been a single, but there is, you know, uh, a little bit of a hint here as to where they were going and, you know, belief is our relief with, with the absolute dissonance of the saxophone in there, which that will come back to uh, <laughs> on uh, Songs from the Big Chair. Hard to hard to sum up why this album was not the, a big success, but I'm going to sum it up with something. You're probably going to laugh, but I think it's true. Is that for a British band like Tears for Fears, I think what throws them off for an American audience is the album cover for the Hurtin. So if we look at the album cover for a second, and for listeners, pull it up when you get a second. It's like basically a kid. He, his knees are up. He's sitting down. He's crouched down with his. Uh, hands over his face and I think in a weird way 
that kind of explains the how an American looked at Tears for Fears in 1983 with this album because it's very intense and it's very sometimes one note a little some of the singles i mean like they would have stronger singles later on even though i do like some of the songs on here but it kind of feels like that's almost like a metaphor for how americans looked at tears for fears at least when they first debuted because they're not on the album cover the two guys and i think that that's really interesting that record company and the band made that decision to have that as the cover because especially the next album songs from uh, the big chair they are smack dab in the middle the two uh roland and kurt so it's like really interesting that the artwork here is kind of a metaphor for how americans just didn't get them with that first album i think and and you two would do something similar with with boy and war but you know, yeah and that kid's looking right at you and it's Maybe a little more strikingly artistic, but... That's actually true that you say that, because now if you think about it, like, they're not facing the camera. They're looking, like, you know, not directly at the camera. So it's just really interesting, especially when it's your first album. And U2 is a good example of that, too, because really they didn't become a success until the 80s progressed. I mean, of course, they became superstars by the end with, like, Joshua Tree. And, like, their other albums are fantastic, but they also kind of... It was like a slow burn almost. Mm -hmm. And I think I got to give a shout out to probably my favorite Tears for Fear song that I never get tired of and I love it so much is Mad World. I think that that is, to me, the definitive Tears for Fear song. Like it's something dark and ominous and it's kind of, and I think that's something that they don't get enough credit for too, is that they create like an atmosphere on the records with their synth work and their engineering and all that sort of sounds and i think there's just something about that that song that i just love so much and i never ever get tired of it anytime it's on it has to be played in its entirety and i think we'll never forget the image of kurt with his hands on the window looking outside in the mad world music video and and that's 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 the new wave film culture where you're messing around in the video you're messing around with with different angles you're editing different sections together you're breaking the rules of, of hollywood filmmaking um you know and filming him first looking at us and then going inside the room and you see Roland on the outside and you're in the inside with Kirk and you see Roland out there doing his, you know, doing his little dance. That is very, you know, 1960s new wave film. And that's where that all comes in. It's just my favorite song. I don't know why. I mean, I think it's because I heard the two or three on songs for the big chair like a hundred times over but no it's just it's such a great song and of course i remember it from the donnie darko soundtrack then in the movie of course like that's just how it became famous again for like a whole new generation now something i did want to talk about because i i've mentioned this a few times was their sophomore album which is songs from the big chair now this is the album that really broke them through to a global audience especially in america and they had two number one hits with shout and everybody wants to rule the world and literally they were like on top of the world in 1985 like i mean there was not too many bands with that much success as Tears for Fears were in that year. And they were all over the radio and MTV at that time. And, you know, their commercial and really critical breakthrough, because I think the 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 hurting, it kind of was a, like a mixed reviews from a lot of critics. Like it was kind of like it's good, but we didn't really know what to think of it. And 
it's really interesting that their sophomore album was their breakthrough. Let's talk a little bit about that album. Like, why is it so important? And why was this their breakthrough, really? There is a possibility that Americans misunderstood some of these songs and that they really didn't, you know, the idea that some of the, 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 the social and political and psychological issues were not on the forefront on songs from the big chair. So Americans can overlay what any, what any fantasies they wanted onto those songs. That might be a factor here. Again, with me, I felt like I, I did you know, hear the bottom of what they what they really meant on Shout and uh, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. MTV is a factor. I don't think we can ignore that, nor, nor should we, because I think it does have some uh, serious film culture overlap there. The big question, why was it interesting to teenagers at that time? If you watch the video to Everybody Wants to Rule the World, you know, there's Kurt Smith in a, a mid 60s Austin Healey 3000 in British green and the car has California plates on it. So, you know, mm-hmm. there, there, there's a there's a nice mystery here. And he Kurt, Kurt's an actor. He he's made some appearance. He's, he's made some guest appearances on uh, an NBC show called Psych. And um, the, I've never watched the whole thing, but apparently this is something that some of the younger kids have picked up on but oh yeah um, if you ever watched it, it's really funny and if you like tears for fears like i don't know if you have to watch that episode per se but one of the lead characters like one of his favorite groups is tears for fears so yeah. it's like it's kind of like recurring story yeah so you know th- this is kind of the 80s fantasy here's here's a guy he he looks like the boy next door and he's going to california right why it, why does the car have california plates on it if he's you know he see, he's got to stop and ask for directions so is he going home but if he's going home why should he have to stop and ask for directions uh, or is he going to california for the first time and if he is then whose car is it so you know there, here's this wonderful mysterious but absolutely adorable video speaking of music videos stephanie i'm a librarian i'm an academic librarian so it always warms my heart when people say in popular culture can you think of examples of librarians in like music for example and the first one that almost everyone points to is the head over heels music video yeah (laughs) and i think that's such a like fun playful music video and it's kind of like shown that okay these guys yeah they write about some things that are kind of serious but you know they have a little bit of lightheartedness and uh humor in their work too because it is kind of a fun video i think like every time i watch it it's just it's so it's, it's adorable and you don't have to think about it you... oh no but I, it's also just a shout out to you know the listeners like go support your libraries and you know <laughs> just think like tears for fears might have inspired some literacy uh they they film that in, at, a, at a catholic college in toronto so yes and you know here's me explaining well why was songs from the big chair such a big hit you know rather than my own personal opinions why did it break through uh as big as it did the the shout video to me that video again it corresponds with the mess the political message of the song and very artistic they filmed that and endorse it you know and there there's curtain rolling on the beach no band for the first part of the video and then at the at the end of the video they go into this very odd room um and you see them you see the entire band playing and then all of these wonderful 
you know, well-dressed middle-class girls and women and children and some young men, they all join them for that sing-along. What that meant to me at the time was that, you know, if you want to challenge the political establishment, you don't have to look ridiculous. You don't have to go into full punk mode or alter your body in any way. You could just be a normal middle-class kid and have some sub subversive thoughts and potential, you know, and to me, that's the message of shout. You, you didn't have to look radical to be radical. Yeah. That's actually a really good point is that they kind of looked very like ordinary, right? Exactly, the two yeah. guys from Tears for Fears. I think what helps this album and why it became such a breakthrough for them is that they wrote anthems, right? They wrote songs that defined their generation and like the i guess the frustrations and the overall attitude of that era right like think about like everybody wants to rule the world you could think of someone singing that in a stadium for example and i mean of course it probably falls on their heads like what the message is about but it's just really they're, they're just making anthems for a worldwide audience that's not so introspective like the Hurden was like because i think that's what also hurt the Hurden. <laughs> kind of funny um but yeah so i think that they kind of took a step back and they kind of said okay we need more of a universality component and that's what makes it work i think i think songs from the big chair you know goes both ways you can take those singles out of context and and they work um, but putting them back into the album, then you put everything together. And I think if you, if you, you know, if somebody takes everybody wants to rule the world out of the album, you might misinterpret it. If you put okay. it, if you put it back in the album and, and you're paying attention there, there's no way you can misinterpret the irony of that song. And the the album tracks you know on songs from the big chair this is where we get into some of the fan favorites um and oh, yeah. the, and, and the deeper meaning to them that more correspond with with the hurting than any fantasy that people might have had of of them the working hour is is certainly a fan favorite and i i feel a definite kind of brian wilson inspiration here Roland would pay tribute to him later on in the 90s, but, you know, the, the Brian Wilson line from Pet Sounds, no one wants to help me look for places where new things might be found. The, the sense of alienation from your peers, your the artistic frustration, you, you know, you, you have potential that you can't live up to. That message comes into the working hour, I, th I think, a lot. You know, the idea that we're paid by those who learn from our mistakes. That, that's that's very brian wilson right there that is um, yeah so i did want to ask because i was confused by this too i guess was weren't they supposed to play at live aid and then like what happened exactly live aid you know this is something that certainly uh political scientists are interested in but yes they they were supposed to be in philadelphia and to appear at live aid whatever got messed up there they they did not appear uh kurt i think mentioned he was at wembley stadium probably hanging out on the stage i, I don't think he played what what i felt I, I absolutely did care about live aid at the time and what i felt at the time was that you know you have this horrible famine in in ethiopia 
going on, and Live Aid was a response to that and a, a, an attempt to make money to help the victims of the Ethiopian famine. Hosted by Irish musician Bob Geldof. 1985, kind of going back to that moment, how wonderful it was to bring the world together for this, uh, for this spectacle. Concerts going on in different cities throughout the world. You called in, you donated money thinking you were you were helping the victims of the famine and you know i remember hearing a horrible racist dehumanizing jokes about the victims of the famine you know and seeing this on television uh it made you feel good in in a way and and i think that's what live aids legacy is to the average person it made you feel good that the world could come together musically and socially this is part of the u2 comparison that i think is kind of interesting u2 were uh routinely criticized in ireland for what they did and bono in particular if you listen to the joshua tree that's basically an irish band examining america right mm -hmm. and the west coast it gets a little bit into American exceptionalism and, and California exceptionalism. From the point of view of, of the Irish press, what you two were doing was to fantasize and to encourage Irish people to emigrate, to you know, go to America. That's where you can be successful. You will have your dreams fulfilled if you go there. And, and maybe that was a complete fraud. So you're just compounding trauma onto trauma in terms of the particular experiences of Irish people. So yes, you two were criticized for doing that. Now, if we go back to the image presented in the video of everybody wants to rule the world, and we know that they're singing that ironically and in observer mode, but it's still presenting the, the same kind of thing. You know, get in a sports car, go to California, that's where all your dreams will come true. But Tears for Fears get away with it because they're English and not Irish. Um, now, Tears for Fears, on the other hand, they, I think we can safely say now, this is an, an Anglo-American band. Kurt's an American citizen. He votes here. He, he, lives, he lives in California. They, they do most of their work uh, on the West Coast. Uh, and I, th I think they've, you know, they've made that tra transition in a way that has been more difficult for other bands that are their contemporaries. Yeah, definitely. Now, I did want to transition to talk about their third album, The Seeds of Love, because I think that's a really interesting album in many ways. And I think I like that they kind of took this obviously hugely Beatles influence that you would see, especially on the title track of that album. It's almost impossible to not see it that way but that production history was famously uh, how do we want to say it? they it strained their relationship very much so so i was curious if we could talk a little bit about how that album came to be and kind of what would lead to their eventual breakup in like 1990 or 1991 yeah the, the general trajectory of their history as a duo from the hurting to the seeds of love is that as they go on roland starts to take over you know yeah. and, well it's it's worthless to say you know whose fault was that it, certainly roland w was and maybe is still more uh, a, a type a personality I mean, that, that's kind of 
oversimplifying things, but um, they're both incredibly creative songwriters and to, to have the two of them on an album where the different vocal styles are together, the more balance that they could pull out of their partnership, the better. But, you know, on the seeds of love, it's the beginning of, of Kurt leaving, you know, when they're, when they're making the album. What I remember in particular is that when it was released, uh, a lot of criticism about the production style that at the time I, I thought was unfair. Now, I was, th this came out when I was in the eighth grade and I was already by then thinking seriously that may maybe I should be an engineer. So I, I signed up for a course at a local recording studio. It lasted all summer and they, they taught us everything. They taught us how to record. They taught us how to mix. And we're, we're recording ourselves, we're mixing our own music. And, you know, we would spend the mornings basically going over, you know, just listening to albums that we enjoyed. And some of the, the, um, the Beatles CDs were just, you know, ha over the course of a, a few years prior had uh, come out for the first time, those first Beatles CDs. So we would, we would listen to the Beatles CDs and, you know, talk about, uh, of course, George Martin and Jeff Emmerich and all the work they did. When the Seeds of Love comes out, uh, I felt really that that was one of the best produced albums I had ever heard. Mm -hmm. um, it, it still stands the test of time for me. And it takes them several years to finish, of course, and the whole drama around that. And there's, you know, there's like, what, four years between Songs from the Big Chair and the Seeds of Love. And uh, they start working with new producers. They fire the new producers and then they bring Chris Hughes back in. Uh, over, they're in several different studios. Supposedly, the the album costs more than a million pounds to make. Some critics, to quote one critic in particular, pompously overproduced. Uh, an, another says it is their most brilliant work. But I remember, you know, listening to it for the first time and just noticing the fidelity of that album. And again, listen to it with headphones. There, there's freedom there from, from the, the pop era of the early and mid eighties. They're obviously listening to more American music than they had in the past. They have some new people and this is where it gets really interesting. Um, they meet Olita Adams at, at a hotel in Kansas city. And here she is, a middle-aged African-American woman who has a long history in R&B, um, but she doesn't quite get the record deal she deserves because, you know, at the time uh, they, you know, they wanted dance and disco music. And, but she was just an incredible talent and they, they obviously realized that. And they invite Olita, album, Olita Albums to perform on the album and to tour with them as well and they start the album out with with woman in chains um and this is where roland brings in his history of being traumatized by a, a father that abused his mother but you know a gorgeous video um even if you did not know and maybe it's better that listeners did not know that the song was autobiographical but it's it's a tribute to feminism it's a tribute to um, the idea that, 
you know, you as a woman do not have to put up with any type of physical abuse. Uh, and Roland goes into the mode where he's initially singing the, the words of the abuser. You better love loving and you better behave. And then Olita comes in with her absolutely soaring, gorgeous vocals. Um, it, it took a lot of uh, guts to put that song as the opening track on the album and to have a hit with it as well. But yeah, they they start to they start to jam uh, on this album, especially with uh, with Badman song. You know, they start to have improvising and longer solos. But I remember just you know being there in the recording studio with the teacher and and the other students who are all a lot older than me, um, and we were listening to a lot of Don Was at the time. He was. He was in a band called Was Not Was. He, he, he was producing Bonnie Raitt. So I remember our, our, our teacher, the studio owner, we would sit and listen to Don Was records, the CDs, actually. And, and then I remember Jack, our teacher, would say, okay, you know, what's, what else is out there? What, what, do you, what do you think sounds good? And here I am, age 15, and I said, oh, you know, Tears for Fears put out a new album. And I think it sounds great. And, and everybody else is looking at me like I'm a complete idiot. That's, that's, that's a band girls like, right? That, that old stereotype. We, we, put, we put on Seeds of Love over the studio monitors. And Jack looks at me and looks at the rest of the class. And he says, you know, Steph's right. This, this sounds great. <laughs> I, I felt really good in that, in that moment and, and just not embarrassed anymore. I, I didn't care what the other students said, but as long as the producer says, yes, this, this album sounds fantastic. But, uh, last year, they released a box set. You can hear the outtakes. You can hear the jam session. They call it the townhouse jam. Um, and here in retrospect, how it came together. I don't think the album is as controversial as it was always made out to be. Like, you know, it, it kind of, the, the, the impression we got at the time was that they were kind of schizophrenic in that, well, they didn't know what they wanted. You know, what did they want their album to sound like? Why did they go through so many different decisions about who was ultimately going to produce it? But I think if you listen to the box set, they, they weren't as confused as it was made out in the time. So I think, I think both Kurt and Roland are kind of vindicated on, on that end of it. It's really weird how Seeds of Love is one of those albums where, like, depending on who you talk to, they either love it or hate it. Like, there's no middle ground, I feel like, because, like, even the reviews I was reading on that album, it's either really, it's astounding, it's, like, so beautiful, and then there's some that just said, like you said, it's either just so-so, they're not sure what to make of it, right? And I think that that's what's really interesting about that album. And I think it is one of those albums where I think you have to kind of sort of be in the right mood. You have to be in the right environment. Because once you kind of listen to it, I think it's really excellent. And it's almost weirdly progressive rock in a way, or pop. It's like, it's hard to explain. Because I'm always reading articles about how, like when they say like the biggest flops or misses, and they always list this album, I'm like, well, maybe, but if you look at it from a different lens, it's actually quite great. No, I I, from a fan's perspective, and I think if we pulled Tears for Fears fans, you know, do fans of the band think 
it, it's a poor album. I, I do not think that at all. I think that, you know, the criticism there comes from the wise ass typical music critics who would always give them a hard time and always will give them a hard time. But they um, tried to make them cry because, you know, the tears. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> well, uh, but I think that something that this album is really great at is just their sheer adventurism and how they're willing to take these chances. And it took four years. Like, I think it's hugely, like, not strategic, but it's very bold of them to wait four years after a massive album like Songs of Big Chair, take their time to make an album, and then they come back at the end of the decade. I mean, they had a number two hit with the title track, but it kind of just, like, didn't really do much beyond that. And I think that you saw these tensions between Kurt and Roland boil over time, and then it kind of just reached this, this boiling point that now, okay, like, they can't work together anymore. And, you know, they broke up after their tour in 1990. And then, you know, I don't think they talked for, like, 10 years, right? Something crazy yeah. like that yeah it, it was about 10 years and I, you know i think if i could go you know in a time machine and and see one of the shows to support this to support this album to see olita adams with them would, would have would have been an absolute joy oh yes and she did that song with uh women in love right or women in chains i mean women in chains yeah um and she she was singing i believe as well from songs from the big chair R roland i don't want to say let her sing that but gave her that song to sing Roland uh, was like, "Here, here, Adams, you you take it and run with it." Yeah, and um, she she kind of replaces Nikki Holland, who was on tour with them in the mid '80s. Mm -hmm. Nikki's also a great talent, and Nikki writes co-writes many of these songs on on the Seeds of Love. So you know that's another point about about Tears for Fears, um, not just talking the talk, but constantly throughout their career working w working with women that is something they don't get enough credit for exactly and you know we, we don't have to repeat what, what's gone on and, and come to light over the past few years where us women have kept silent about so many different abuses in in the entertainment industry and 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 in every industry so you know if, if we're here if we're going to go out of our way to bring attention to a band who are who are they personally in terms of character this this stuff matters and it matters to the music too because if you're ignoring the talents of people like olita adams and nikki holland um you know showing that these women made our work better that that means a lot to me as a woman yeah i i totally agree i think that's something that they don't get enough credit for now, I will say, and I just want to talk to this very briefly, is that I, when he they broke up in 19, or really not when they broke up, really when Kurt left the band in 1990, I did not know that essentially Elemental, which was 1993, is basically a Roland solo album under the Tears for Fears moniker. It's so interesting because you, you think of a duo like them, right? And they're so harmonious and they are... Like, you can't think of one without the other. They just have that. It's almost like the Eurythmics, right? Like, Annie Lennox needs Dave Stewart and vice versa. And it's weird when one isn't with the other. Like, it feels like something's missing. And, yeah, I did not know that it was essentially a Rowan solo album, basically. Mm -hmm. There's two albums there in the 90s, Elemental uh, and Raul and the Kings of Spain. That is Roland and the New Band. Olita comes back uh, for... 
a little while there, but yeah, it, it did not make sense from a musical perspective to go from a duo to, well, a role in fronting a backing band. I can't think of another group band that did that successfully, like where literally it's like a duo or trio. And then you're like, okay, we'll just do the two guys or two people or solo. And like, that just doesn't seem like it works. I mean, he did have success because Break It Down Again was like a number one U.S. modern rock song. And it hit the top 40 on the pop charts here. But it's like just strange. I I was just taken aback by that. This takes us into the Britpop era, which, um, you know, I I think most music fans of a certain opinion would feel the same way as I do. You know, by the late 80s, there was absolutely no reason to listen to Top 40 anymore. Uh, And we have this, a new format, you know, which was called Alternative Rock coming uh, into play in the early 90s. And when you mm-hmm. when you look at those two albums, Elemental and Raul and the Kings of Spain, that's you know that's where they fit in. They're they're not a top forty band anymore. They're an no. al- they're they're an alternative rock band, and all of the Brit pop was played on those alternative rock channels. If you if you listen carefully to Oasis, for example, and uh, you can you can hear the influence and some of what Roland was doing sounds a lot like what Oasis was doing. The, the synths are gone. It's loud guitars. Certainly the lyrics are a lot different. But from a, from a, a perspective of the textures of what the, what the albums sound like, what Roland was doing was Britpop. It, it almost anticipated the whole Britpop era. Definitely. And I mean, you had bands like Blur and like like that that were also emerging too but yeah i kind of heard that too when i was listening to it i definitely heard that almost anticipation and almost embrace of bird pop from a more uh i guess intellectual point of view what is roland what's roland doing on the elemental album if if you put some of that together lyrically uh break it down especially he is i think expressing some a discontent of being the pop star when he was more famous, uh, being, mm-hmm. being, being lied to by people in, you know, in the industry, you know, th- this is what you can have. Uh, you know, this is what you're promised. This is what they tell you is going to happen when you're really famous, um, mm-hmm. you know, to prop up, to prop up your ego. Uh, and then, you know, in elemental, he says, you know, you didn't tell me about the beauty of decay. So <laughs> it's <laughs> it re- true. Clever lyrics and, and, and a catchy song. That whole idea, I think, is very a part of the Elemental album. And uh, there's, there's a breakup song on there as well. Um, <laughs> ba- basically accusing Kurt of kind of being the guy who sold out. You know? oh, leave Kurt alone. He's great. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and they, as more mature adults, they would, they probably look back on this and laugh and, you know, that that's in the far past, but, but, you know, but at the time, uh, you know, when you, when you're a fan, you, you might take sides and that song might have, that song might have encouraged some fans to take sides. 
Uh, yeah, no, definitely. And I think that because they had a really bad breakup. I think we're under, almost underestimated how bad it was. Like, yeah. it's so bad that they didn't talk to each other for over a decade. Yeah. And even when they did talk, it was through lawyers. And it was like, I think at one point there was even, I'm just representing Kurt, like, like or Roland said that, or it's just like, it was so messy. But thankfully, Thankfully, they did kind of patch things up, and then they kind of had these remasters that started popping up in the late 90s and early 2000s, and they kind of started to talk a little bit more, and they released a new album, Everybody Loves It, Happy Ending, in 2004. Personally, it's an okay album. It's nothing special, but it's kind of like Tears for Fears is back being active and really what that album did in many ways i think we could both agree on stephanie is that they really became a touring band and that's kind of like what they've been doing for the last 15 plus years yeah for them to reunite kurt has done some fantastic solo work you know Mm -hmm. but for them to reunite from a fan's perspective who are they as a duo again i'm i'm really anticipating what what they're going to do on on the tipping point to go back to being a socially conscious band and politically conscious uh, and to being being critical, which I, I think at this point in our in our lives, we're really going to welcome that. But yeah, um, there could have. What did you think of the new song? The tipping point, it's is, of course, intense, intensely personal from from Roland's point of view about the death of his first wife and Mm -hmm. the idea that uh, you know before the person leaves you you've lost them before they've died and and how do you deal with that and you know in the tipping point at at what point are they really gone this is very catholic this is this is very hamlet uh the, the person is a ghost and you're you're presented with the image of the ghost and you you sort of recognize him. It's like Hamlet looking at his father as a ghost. You sort of recognize him. You, you know it's that person, but it's sort of uncanny in a way because you don't really, there's a part of them that you don't recognize. And mm-hmm. you, you want that person, you want that whole person to come back to you and you're dealing with the grief that they can't. And, saying goodbye before you say goodbye. I, I was shocked in a, a very good way that, um, and this is the kind of emotional connection that we expect from Tears for Fears, from, mm-hmm. from both Roland and Kurt. And it reminded me of, you know, being, uh, hearing them for the first time. And, and I think we're, we are going to hear them for the first time again on the tipping point. I think so too, because I think, when I heard that, I was taken aback because it sounded like something that they would make in their prime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's like these guys still have something left in them. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, and going back to the original reunion album, Everybody Loves a Happy Ending, uh, they, they were criticized, as they often are, of being pretentious. Yes. Uh, here's here's one headline: pretentious British duo ruins our fond remembrances by reuniting, which is of course one of those ridiculous, typical critic blow off things. Uh, and and if a if a critic's going to write write that, I would really question if they understood or even listened to the band uh, in previous decades, because Kurt and Roland were always intellectual, but yes. but down to earth at the same time. And, and and populist at the same time. And, I think and, it's to knock people off 
So it's like, oh, you wanted this album that it hasn't happened in like 15 years. But I'm glad you enjoyed the tipping point, though, because I think that is a return to form. And I think it makes me honestly anticipate heavily what this album that's going to be released in February 2022. And hopefully they release another track or two before it drops. And I'm really looking forward to it. As a fan of their work, I'm really intrigued. Yes, both uh, Roland especially and, and Kurt, they, they opened up to a reporter from The Guardian who, who interviewed them. Uh, I guess waves of appreciation through their fan base and beyond mm-hmm. to, to, to talk honestly to a reporter who obviously knows her stuff and prepared for the interview and to tell the story about what, what the tippy point is really about. Um, and, the, and the video that they released to go along with it is absolutely striking. And mm-hmm. we, we see Kurt and Roland at age, they just, they both just turned 60 this summer. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, for us in Gen X, here's our uh, cue that we're all middle-aged and almost not middle-aged. We're almost past the state of being middle-aged. You know, the, the musicians we looked up to when we were kids, here they are at 60, the rest of us are next in line. So uh, we, we better pay attention. And the, the admiration to make such a creative statement, which might be your last album and might be your last chance to do that, um, to not pay tribute to yourself, but to go back to the type of openness that attracted us in the first place. Oh, definitely. And I think that's what makes this album all the more exciting for me as a, a fan. It's Will we see something like The Herd In or Songs from the Big Chair or The Seeds of Love? It, it, it makes you feel that same anticipation, but also hopefully the expectations are too high. The new album has new listeners that maybe don't know who they were or, you know, there's so much. The world's their oyster. I guess that's what I'm kind of trying to say. Mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that many of us are traumatized because of the last five years or so with politics with the the deaths of hundreds of thousands and i expect them to address that issue uh and and talk about our collective traumas in the way that they did in their younger years oh definitely um let's talk about are there any famous admirers of tears for fears because i this question seems kind of like a snowball question but you'd be surprised at how many people really like tears for fears that are famous musicians um, so I was just hoping if we could share a few. I'd like to take this in a in a a little bit of a different direction, um, and maybe talking about well, why do younger generations like them? And they're they're lucky to get the admiration from multiple generations. I, I think I, boomers, Gen X, millennials, and now Gen Z getting into their music, um, and that's a rare thing in the music industry. But um, one thing that movie soundtracks, Donnie Darko and The Hunger Games. The, that has been discussed a lot and a, a big, big part of what makes them influential to multiple generations. One thing that I think many people do not realize is that their music is being remixed by young, mm-hmm. by young people. And this is a, a YouTube genre. This stuff does not exist without the internet. If if you if you go it go down the rabbit hole of vaporwave music, and this is kids taking music and just remixing it in the box. They're sampling 
Um, and they, they've created this whole musical aesthetic movement. Well, I think that's something that, because you mentioned remixes, I think something that's really interesting is how famous artists like Kanye West and The Weeknd have sampled Tears for Fear songs in their own work. I remember hearing The, the Weeknd's Starboy album four or five years ago, and one of the songs is takes heavily the sample from the uh, work from Pale Shelter, oh. and Kanye West took a song or two of theirs over the years too. So it's really interesting how a lot of like their work is being sampled, but also in R&B and hip hop, which is kind of similar in a weird way to say like another duo that made me think of this. And that's hollow notes mm-hmm. in the sense that hollow notes were always more soulful, right? We could both agree on that, but like their real legacy in a weird way is how their work was sampled and re rethought by hip-hop and r&b much later on yeah and if if you do that you know the question is are are the do do the do the fans of the new band care about the old band and that's always going to be up in the air uh or is it going to kind of be obscure but you know the, the way youtube or spotify works is um you can't ignore it the old thing is going to turn up in your playlist uh if if something new is including the old thing mm-hmm. and, and the way YouTube works and the way, you know, the, the, the way some of the streaming services work, it's not really transparent, but if the, you know, the so-called legacy act gets into the playlists of the young people, then you can't ignore it the way you could then if you just heard the sampling. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think that, it's just really interesting how someone like The Weeknd, for example, he just had a tweet about uh, Tears for Fears, and Kurt responded, and I think The Weeknd appeared kind of giddy. It was kind of <laughs> very cool, but it's really great because The Weeknd has, like, what, like 15, 20 million followers, and a lot of those followers may not know who the heck Tears for Fears are, but now they kind of are like, okay, if he likes them, then maybe I'll check them out. And I think that's how oftentimes a lot of these acts from like a few decades ago, they get rediscovered by new audiences. Oh, um, that's what it was. The weekend said, because he was listening to the song Memories Fade on The Hurt In, and he said, but the sky still lingers. And then Kurt re- responded, hate to correct you, my friend, but it's the scars still linger. <laughs> and and then The weekend replied, scars, with an asterisk, even better and then he like winked at him. So <laughs> it was like, but you know, it reminded me of like how Cardi B said her uh, admiration for like the Pet Shop Boys earlier this year too. Uh-huh. It's really just interesting how a lot of R&B and especially hip hop artists are looking to these 80s, prog- progressive 80s pop stars from the British uh, second wave and kind of drawn influence on them. And it's just really cool that uh he kind of was starstruck a little by kurt yeah and uh, talking about the pet shop boys and you know there's another band that goes goes into ironic observer mode you know oh my god yes (laughs) and you you hear pet shop boys and tears for fears their their music taken by you know advertisers completely out of context it's like oh yeah that that's that's disturbing in itself opportunities being used to save money on your car insurance (laughs) (laughs) oh oh, i remember that and then there was another one for um even like rent or songs like that you're well 
No, it's very critical of a capitalist culture, and there's all these factors that don't even get mentioned. Now, something I did want to mention is that Everybody Wants to Rule the World is probably their most covered song by a mile. You've heard so many covers of the song, like Lord did a great version for the Hunger Games soundtrack. Uh, Don Henley even did a cover. But I always think, and this is why I think if you were ever to make an argument for them for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or anything like that, you look to Patti Smith, and Patti Smith is one of the great lyricists of the last half century. And I remember her in an interview saying that Everybody Wants to Rule the World is the greatest pop song ever recorded. Hmm. And that speaks volumes because Patti is like a poet, a writer, an artist with a capital A. And for her to say that about Tears for Fears, I think it's just incredible. But I think that Patti Smith quote is so important because with Patti Smith, he kind of like, in terms of like modern rock icons, like there's fewer people bigger than that. And when she said that, that always stuck with me when I think about their legacy. Uh, I, I think, you know, if if the uh, trying to get into their heads, well, okay, put Tears for Fears, okay, induct them, put them, put them on that show, what will they do good on that show? I think the answer is absolutely. You know, when, when you have so many people from different generations knowing your music, all of the famous cover songs, all of the young artists who have sung their praises, uh, yeah, they're going to do awesome on that show. So do I it. Think do it. That th- I think now that you're starting to see more new wave artists and 80s alternative, like we mentioned before, the the Cure, Depeche Mode, and even like the Go-Go's now, you're kind of starting to see splitting of the atom sort of. Like even three years ago or four years ago, I would have said like they have no chance because you you can't even get these like obvious A-list bands and acts into the Hall of Fame. But now it seems like now since really the Cars got inducted in 2018, you're seeing like a new wave act every year. Mm -hmm. So it's a good sign for them. And I think that they would do better than most would think. I don't know if they would get in the first time that they were on a ballot. I think that that would be a little... It depends on who they're going up against. I could see it happening because they have that universality of the hits. Like, you know, they have at least five or six really strong singles that everyone knows and loves that they could kind of point to. They remind me almost like Simple Minds in a weird way or Human League where you you know like three or four songs from them, right? But beyond that, for like a casual listener, it might be a little bit tougher but there's no denying their impact and like how huge those songs are. And, and they would both make the most funniest engaging induction speeches I could imagine. <laughs> the weekend would have to induct <laughs> Tears for Fears. Like I, I, I'm like convinced it would be him or Lord. It would be one of the two because you need younger blood, especially at these ceremonies. And it would be so much fun. And you know the four songs that they would play are like the hits. Like it would be like Everybody Wants to Rule the World. It would be probably Shout. It would probably be Head Over Heels and probably either Mad World or The Seeds of Love or something like that. Like yeah. maybe even like a little bit of like of a deeper hit. Yeah, like they, 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 you know, those three first albums play one or you know, one song from each. I don't think the Rock Hall would let them play a new song, but, you know. 
Hey, they did it for Bon Jovi. But <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think that they would. Yeah, you are right. There would be something from the first three. Definitely be at least half would have to be songs for the big ch- chair because that's like their their legacy, their magnum opus. You know, there's they've also you know they've have not ever shied away from any controversy you know in their lyric, and I think you know from the point of view of these uh, cynical rock critics that you see on the nomcom should should that impress them i don't know do do they do they even listen to all of the album tracks i don't know on if i were going to do a mixtape of what what songs that i would put on a tears for fears mixtape you know forget about the big 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 hits you know what songs would i put on there yeah let's go Um, let's do that really quick what are the five or six songs that you would choose and why and when i mean essential songs i'm saying like if you point to someone say like that's tears for fears in a nutshell those are the five or six songs you you would kind of throw at them yeah and this might surprise some people number one as i mentioned woman in chains that's going to be number one because of the lyrical content and because of their own bravery kicking off the seeds of love with that um number two is going to be the working hour roland one of his best vocals i think in his entire career with that wailing saxophone with the dissonance i I think the combination of his vocal and the sax i think really sums up the emotional content of their music the seeds of love because it's it's a cute song and it's a serious song at the same time advice for the young at heart one of kurt's best vocals again very cute and very uh you can ignore their political messages for the time being. Pale Shelter is going to be on there. The, you know, the pure tears for fears before they were forced to, you know, listen to things that were outside their comfort zone. The the album, The Hurting, which has the least contributions, you know, from outside the band. And and The Tipping Point, the, you know, the title track of the new album. To go a little deeper, I would put Break It Down on there. I would put Standing on the Corner of the Third World on there, which to me, that's one of their most important political songs. And, you know, if you listen to the lyrics there, Roland is, you know, criticizing the whole history of imperialism. Hey there, little lady, has your baby got the look of some old man? Um, Another song I would put on there actually comes from one of Kurt's solo albums, and it's it's again a taboo subject, and, and the song is called "Porn Star," and uh, he's not singing about sex workers. He's singing about American politics. A fairly recent song, and uh, as an American citizen, Kurt is looking at American politics and how money—you know—no matter what your ideals are, no matter what your principles are—if you're in American politics, you are a porn star to the system of money, and he's. I think right on point. And again, a taboo subject raised uh, in raised lyrically. The other song, I, the last song I would put on this list is I Believe, which is, uh, again, that sh- just shows off. Roland's vocal is one of, the, one of the album tracks from Songs from the Big Chair. Those are all excellent uh, choices. Some of them I'm going to have to check out, especially Porn Star, because I was mm-hmm. not familiar with that. So that's, that's really great that you chose those songs i'm going to throw a few for the listeners i'm going to make a spotify playlist like i do for all the other episodes uh, that we both select 
only ones I'm going to add are probably the hits, really. And that's Mad World, Change, Shout, Everybody Wants to Rule the World. These are all songs, too, that I think no one knows who they are. Those are also songs that I would just kind of throw in there, too, just to have them acquainted. They'll be like, oh, I think I might have heard that in a movie or TV show. And I think that that would be great. But the songs you chose are really excellent. Like I said, I'm going to have to check some of them out because I really am not familiar, familiar, <laughs> familiar with some of them. Uh, but that, that was really awesome. Something I did want to mention really quick about um, Tears for Fears is, have they won any major awards or accolades throughout their career? Because usually, like we were talking a little bit about this with the Raw Call, is that usually that's a good indicator if they do get a nomination at some point, or at least momentum towards a nomination. But... I'm curious if they've won any major awards. If if one award is going to be maybe leading into something different, uh, it, it's the Ivor Award that they just mm-hmm. received. And this is a, a British award named after Ivor Norvello. And it, he, they received it for Outstanding Song Collection. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the same values as like the Songwriters Hall of Fame, looking at the entirety of your career and your catalog. Uh, you know, a career achievement award, but really focused on the quality of the songwriting. That's a good one. Yeah, and they just received that for their entire career. And I think going back to the mid-80s, Roland had received an Ivor previously as well, I think, for for something from Songs from the Big Chair, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and they also won, like, MTV VMA awards in, like, 1990 for Sowing the Seeds of Love. I think it was for Best Visual Effects and Best... uh, like breakthrough video, whatever that mm. whatever that means, uh, they were nominated for Grammy for producer of the year. I don't think they were, but their producers were for I guess the Seeds of Love. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, they were nominated at the 1989 Grammys for producer of the year, which is I think is a pretty cool honor to be bestowed upon them. We talked a little bit about this with the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Let's talk a little bit more. Like, how long do we think it'll take for them to eventually get a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame nomination, if that ever happens for them? Let's see. Um, you know, they've been eligible for a while. Like 15 years, uh, yeah. give or take. Yeah. Do, do, I think, you know, the question is, do the artists care? Um, do, do the fans care? And, and a lot of these movements, too, induct uh, artists who have been overlooked, have been fan movements. I'm not sure that Tears for Fears fan base is as concerned with it as maybe the more baby boomer bands, their fan bases, you know, really felt insulted when their bands did not get included. And that might mean that the Rock Hall as a generational thing is fading in relevance. And maybe maybe it doesn't matter. Um, You know, and Todd Rundgren makes a good point. it doesn't really matter to him, but he's happy for his fans. That's what it boils down to, I think, is a lot of these artists, especially the ones that have been, quote unquote, snubbed for many years. It's not really for the artists, per se. Like, there's just another award on their mantle, right? It's more for their fans. It validates to the fans that their music is being taken seriously and is being appreciated because a lot of, especially the new wave bands that are finally getting in, were critically derided and marginalized for many years. So I think it gives that validity to them. It's like, yes, see, they are important and they do matter. You know, knowing what we all know about just how down to earth 
Roland and Kurt are as human beings, you know, do they care about all of that? I, I doubt it. I doubt it. Oh, I doubt it too. Yeah. They don't look like they, they, they strike me as like, cause there's really a weird with English musicians. It seems like there's a lot of disconnect, like on how they look at it. I know Robert Smith was like, I really don't care about this. Yeah. And, and then there's some, I'm trying to think like Kate Bush. I mean, we love Kate, like Kate's everything, but like she like, didn't even make a statement really. Or like, it, it seems like they're very, well, the European is the word I want to use. Very like, eh, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, I'm not losing sleep over it. Where I feel like a lot of the bands who are making a ruckus, it's because they were more or less marginalized for so many years about their music. I think if we're thinking realistically, like when could Tears for Fears get a nomination? I would say that on five to 10 years. Hmm. And, and that's, you know, pushing age 70. So, well, that's when a lot of these other baby boomer acts that are finally get it in, like the zombies and even American acts like the Doobie Brothers, like they're in their 70s now. But I think that Tears for Fears, I think they're one of those acts too that, you know, they have a case, they have a strong case for the raw call, just with their pop hits and their innovations and making great concept albums. But I think that there's going to have to be a few in line to get to them. Like there's a pecking order in a weird way. Mm -hmm. Like I think you're going to have to see like the B-52s, the Eurythmics, the uh, Duran Duran. You're going to see like those kinds of bands get in and then I would feel more confident have them. Because even when I did my top 100 Rock Hall Prospects project earlier this year, I almost put Tears for Fears on the list. But I just couldn't because there's just so many other bands fighting for that spot. And there's really only one, maybe two spots now on a ballot for that. Yeah. And I think once the deck is cleared a little, you'll finally get to them. But I think that will happen at some point. I feel like they're just kind of inevitable. It's a weird, uh, you know way of thinking about what, what what is this band's legacy and what are they being honored for? Are you being honored, you know, just because, you know, you look cool with, within this social circle of the people who make the decisions for the Rock Hall? And I don't think Tears for Fears or their fan base really care about that. If, if they never get in, I, maybe it's maybe it's better. Let's see if they show up. I think they would show up because they seem like nice guys and they would do it for their fans. But yeah, I think they, the legacy doesn't matter as much because I think it's pretty much there. But I think it will happen for them at some point as we dig deeper into the 80s. Because I think that's where the Rock Hall is kind of at right now. It's like the early 80s. Yeah. And they just seem like an inevitable choice but but the, yeah and and the ivor did mean something to them because they're being recognized as artists for the music and the creativity and the, and the lyrical content and that's just a higher level of understanding than the rock hall i think is capable of yeah i think it's because there's so many political aspects to the rock hall and like you know because i write about it often and do all these other things it's it's so political to the point that like you can't even get to interesting artists or artists who probably do have a shot because the backlog is so bad like they're finally getting to like carol king and tina turner and that's like, that's so weird that's, yeah. it's so like backwards <laughs> yeah. thinking so Stephanie, i gotta ask you one final question is there anything that you would change about tears for fears's career i think all tears for fears fans um would would probably agree on this and that is if they had never broken up in you know 1991 or so um and not only that but keeping the balance on their albums a little more even between 
Roland's contributions and Kurt's contributions. You know, that's, of course, a very personal thing between them, but uh, I think they're certainly a stronger duo when you, when you have more of a balance between them. Uh, the sun and the moon, as we might say. I agree with you that they should have never broken up in 1990. And this is why the the tipping point is, I think, so exciting because they they went back to basics. They you know they've reported that you know they sat down with acoustic guitars and just started you know working out ideas. Just the two of them that way, like they did when they were teenagers. Certainly, uh, Roland's personal trauma of, of recent years once. Um, once he felt he was in a place to to create, you know, they 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 reunited as a duo, and you know, he he reported that he realized that he wants he wanted to make things right with Kurt as well. So good for them, and just a big congratulations to to be brave in that way. And they, and I will say, tears for fears fans were pun intended, head over heels when that happened. Absolutely. And we, uh, we're we glad that they got to resolve their differences, and I'm really glad that they got to make new music, tour, and, I, and I'm looking forward to the tipping point. This is, I think, for me, one of the most anticipated albums of next year. Just really great for them. Absolutely, I agree. Fe- February 25th. I know we we gotta like mark this on our calendars, and we're gonna like <laughs> the second it drops, we're just gonna listen to it, and we're gonna be like, hopefully it's like a return to uh, prime for their iconic for for this iconic '80s duo. Well, Stephanie, thank you uh, so much for coming on the show to talk about Tears for Fears. It was a it was a really good, intelligent conversation about their impact and legacy and contributions to not only popular music, but popular culture. Where could our listeners find you on social media? Find me at my Twitter account at scarta3, S-C-A-R-T-A-3. Let's, yeah, absolutely. Let's continue this conversation on Twitter. There, there's always un, un, things left unsaid or questions, and uh, we'll, we'll pick it up on Twitter. Oh, yeah. Well, we, the conversation will always continue, and we always appreciate your guys' comments and thoughts, e- either in public or privately to me. <laughs> uh, you could, Of course, you could reach the uh, podcast's Twitter account, which is at Rock and Retropod, and of course, my personal Twitter account, which is at Nick D. Bambeck. Of course, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. We got one or two, but we kind of would love more. We would like to hear more from our listeners and their feedback. So definitely leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you again, Stephanie, for coming on the show. And thank you again to everyone for listening. And we'll talk to you guys later.